Jeremiah 5. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Uh, Whatever it takes, we're going to finish this chapter tonight. Verses uh, 1 through 3, I'm going to read, then we'll pray. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know. And seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Shall we pray? Father, as we begin our study this evening, I would ask that you would indeed anoint us and bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. That we may truly know, Father, the the deep understanding of this passage, not only as it applies to your people and to Israel and to Judah and to Jerusalem, but as it applies to us as well. I pray, Father, that our attentiveness would be indeed on a high level. It would be easy for the enemy to get us to refocus or redirect our attention. But these, these things are, are quite important to us, Lord. And we need to pay that close attention to what you have to say to our hearts this evening. Strengthen us by your word. Help us to not only understand it, but to live it out in its proper way, in its proper sense. And as we see the day of Christ approaching, Lord, may we, may we make our hearts draw nearer to you. May we see the seriousness of the times and the days in which we live and not take them for granted. We have so many brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering throughout the world because they are Christians, because they believe that you are God, because they believe in Jesus Christ, because they believe in the work and the finished work of Christ. And they simply are persecuted because they're yours. May we, may we never take these things for granted, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you like to be the one righteous person? Think about this. How would you like to be the one righteous person to be discovered throughout the whole of the United States of America that would bring forgiveness and deliverance to a headstrong and proud nation by just being that one righteous person? It seems a rather ridiculous uh, thing to think in these terms, 
being that there still are many Christians in our land who love and serve the Lord on a daily basis. How could we ever get down to just one righteous person? But just think about Noah for a moment. Think about Noah. Wasn't he the only just person among billions when the Lord told him to build an ark? And I, and I meant to say billions. Uh, uh, the rate at which uh, man uh, begat <laughs> up to the time of Moses would have put pro- practically about a billion or even more people on the earth at that time. But that's what he's called in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Well, it kind of seems, it sounds like our day and time today, doesn't it? That the Lord sees the wickedness of man and being great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. We don't have all the time to go back into the reason why it's, it, it, it states it in that particular sense, except to, to say that that's the only way that we can understand a God that is hard to understand. But from the, from the standpoint of, of, of how man thinks, God allows himself to see, for us to see him as, as one who grieves in his heart over the sin of mankind. In verse 8, though, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Can you imagine that God is going to destroy all of the world, but there's only one man, God, uh, Noah, who was found with grace in the eyes of the Lord. If you go over to Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, notice what it says, And the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Interesting that uh, the Lord puts it that way and not so much says to him, you and your family. He just says, you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, after reading that, would we still think it preposterous that anything like this could happen again? But have we forgotten Abraham and Lot? Have we forgotten what it says in Genesis 18 verses 22 through 24 when it says then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom these are the actually the angels that came from the Lord men turned away from there and went to, towards Sodom but Abraham still stood before the Lord and Abraham came near and he said would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it and he pleaded with God, and, 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 uh, and of course the answer from the Lord is, okay, I'm not going to destroy it for 50 righteous. But he's destroyed for 45, for 40, for 30. You know, when you read this, it sounds like somebody's running down the field, getting ready to score a touchdown. For 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. But if you jump down to verse 32, it says, Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way. As soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. But was a righteous man to be found in Sodom and Gomorrah other than Lot? Not one. 
Not one. And even Lot, when he comes out of Sodom, I mean, what's he doing there in the first place? And why is he considered, you know, of high esteem? And then as he obeys the Lord and takes his family out, his wife disobeys the Lord. She looks back at, uh, at Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, she herself is turned into a, a pillar of salt. Uh, one righteous man. For ten, he would have saved the city. There wasn't even one except Lot. And Lot is told to leave. God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And what of a time that Jesus refers to in the distant future when he asks the question in Luke 18, verse 8, I tell you, uh, he says, I tell you that you will avenge them speedily, but this is what he says. He says, nevertheless, and this is his question, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? And it gets me to, under, it gives me to think and, and, and to ponder this particular thought about the fact that when the Lord comes, if he's removed his church out of the way, when he comes to judge, will he really find faith on the earth? How bad will it, be, will it yet become? And how bad was it during the time of Jeremiah the prophet that the Lord would order a complete moral investigation of Jerusalem and an extensive search throughout the holy city for one righteous person? Think about it. For one righteous person. To read the earlier chapters of the prophecy would lead many to conclude that the nation had been charged with all it had been guilty of but the depths of her sin against the Lord must be reviewed at length. In other words, God wasn't done with them yet. And so he orders an investigation. Because the nation needed to come to a fuller realization and understanding of her deeply rooted iniquities. Now remember, as a point of review, where we are here. Jeremiah is a prophet to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he is telling them that in, not, in the not-so-near future, or I should say in the not-so-distant future, there's an army coming, and it's coming with fierceness and with wrath. God is allowing this army to come, the Babylonians, to bring judgment upon His own people because they have rebelled against Him and they have sought to go their own way. They're worshiping idols. They're doing the things exactly as God said that they weren't supposed to do. So he's sending the prophets to warn them, this judgment is coming. But are they listening? So by this time now, 40 years out, of the, uh, you know, out from the, the coming of this great judgment, God is saying to them, to Jeremiah, he says, go and see if you can find one righteous man. If you find one righteous man, I'll pardon the whole bunch. And that's a tremendous offer that God is making here. Does God already know the, the result? Of course he does. But Jeremiah is, a, is an obedient prophet to the Lord. And, and what the Lord is having Jeremiah to do, and this, this is a, 
This is a part of Jeremiah's ministry throughout the whole of the book, as we'll see later on. But, but the Lord has, as Jeremiah, act out this message. He wants him to act out the message. By the way, we will see at, at least ten times in the book of Jeremiah that God will have him act out various sermons to the people. But this is what he tells him. He says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Act it out. See now and know. And seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. When he says, I will pardon her, I will pardon Jerusalem. And in fact, I will pardon Jeru- uh, Judah. Though they say, and, and here God is giving them you know, the, the, the warning to the prophet, you know, you're not going to find one. But if they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. They're not really living what they say. And we touched upon this last time. The Lord sent Jeremiah out looking for just one person who was just and who sought after the truths of God so that the Lord would pardon them. But what he was trying to show the prophet was how bad things had gotten in the nation. The lesson was for Jeremiah. How bad things had gotten for the nation. That the hearts of the people were bent toward evil day and night, and because of that, no pardon would come to them. I want you to consider Ezekiel, the prophet, the the next prophet over. Uh, There's a book called Lamentations, that's still Jeremiah. But you go to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31, notice what, what it says here. So I sought for a man. Among them who who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me and on on behalf of the land. That I should not destroy it. But I found no one. God said, I don't find anyone. Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. And I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Can you imagine a people who were separated unto God? To bring the wisdom and knowledge of God to all, to all of the world. And yet at this particular point in time, in Israel and in Judah, not one righteous man to stand in the gap for all the nations. And then if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 2, notice there in verse 2 of our text that the people were not without their religious tendencies. Contrary to what some people think, all the world has their religious tendencies. Whether it be to some type of religion or some form of religion. Even atheists have, have, have a religious tendency. They won't admit it, but really their whole tendency is to worship themselves. That's all that atheists do is worship themselves. Because it's all about them. But these people had a religious tendency. They went to temple. They, they, they used the spiritual jargon of the day. As the Lord lives, that was the praise of the Lord of their day. As the Lord lives, God says, ah, they swear falsely. But all it was, in effect, was a cloak of righteousness. Just a cloak of righteousness to hide their sin. And how many people today are using a cloak of righteousness to hide their sin? The fact of the matter is, I'm not going out there looking for your sin. We all have sin. We're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God knows when you start trying to cloak that sin with righteousness. Cloak that sin with spiritual jargon. Cloak that sin with even actions. We're coming to a 
house of worship, we come with bow our hearts before the Lord in humility. At times we lift our hands to the Lord because we we surrender. That, that's you know it's a sign of surrender. A lot of people say, well, why do we lift our hands unto the Lord? It's an act of offering. It's a it's a sign of offering. We're offering unto the Lord our lives. But it's a surrender as well. But how many people do this, but they don't really do it in their heart? They just do it on the outside to look good. (laughs) I know that that's not why you did it. You did it because you honored the Lord. But only God knows that, see. Only God knows that. It's easy to throw out Christian phrases... It's easy to do Christian things, but it's a lot harder to live the Christian faith. It's a lot harder to live the Christian faith and the Christian life. It's a lot harder. That's why we need the Lord. That's why we need God. That's why we need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we need personal and intimate fellowship with Christ. That's why we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Holy Spirit in our lives, not only upon us and around us, but in us. Because we can't do this on our own. We don't live the way, and God never told us to live the Christian life on our own power. Acts 1 verse 8, For you shall receive power from the Holy Ghost to be my witnesses, In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. This is what we need to live the Christian life. So can you see how empty it is? How empty it is to live this kind of, of, of existence of, of going through motions but not ever having truly a personal relationship with God and with Christ. So in Judah and Jerusalem, their words have become empty before God. As the Lord lives didn't mean anything to God because they didn't believe it. They didn't trust in Him. So it was empty. And as we move on in verse 3, it says, O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? Now Jeremiah speaks to the Lord. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. What was the cry of God to His own people? Return to me and I'll forgive you. Return to me and I'll restore you. Return to me. They're not returning. And therefore I said, Surely these are poor. They are foolish. For they do not know the way of the Lord. The judgment of their God. I I will go to the great men and speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord. The judgment of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their backslidings have increased. So their sins are increasing as well as their backslidings. More and more they become stubborn against God. But they still go to temple. They still say, praise the Lord. They still say, as the Lord lives. But it's all empty. 
So while Jeremiah found no one righteous person, he concluded that their lack of religious training would excuse them. So that's why he's saying, oh, they do not know. They're they're ignorant. They don't know the way of the Lord. They don't know the judgment of their God. But I'll go to the great men, speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord. But you see, here's the problem. He's saying that, uh, that their lack of religious training would excuse them. Well, if you commit a traffic infraction on the road, you quickly learn that ignorance is no excuse. You get the ticket, you see. And many times the officer will tell you, ignorance, I I didn't know that officer, ignorance is no excuse. Now you know, you see. Now you know the law. God had over and over tried to wake them up from their spiritual slumber, but they refused to hear the prophets, and the chastening of God only made them more defiant in their actions. So so you understand one thing here. They knew, but they were defiant against God. Jeremiah is trying to help them. (laughs) How many times have we tried to help people? Well, they're just ignorant. Well, they better not be ignorant. Because ignorance is no excuse. Because all of us, everyone who's been created, has some sense or knowledge that there is a God. Just read the book of Romans chapter 1. As a matter of fact, we're going to read a portion of it in just a moment. What should they have been doing because of their sin? They should have been grieving over their sin. Were they? They were not. They were not grieving over their sin. They should have received God's correction by applying it to their lives. But they became as hard as rock, unable, to, unable for God to pre- penetrate. Now, this is not one of those times that we're going to deal with theological questions that, you know, what things can God not do? God could do anything He wants. But why has He given us a will and not made us like robots? So that when we come to the Lord, we come with true love and true surrender. And not as if He's the one forcing the issue. So think about that statement. That they were so hard as rock. And God was unable to penetrate. And their sin was their refusing to return to the Lord. But they knew better. They knew better. See, understand this. Let me just get that picture about, you know, God, God is able to do all things. We know. I'll give you one more picture, though. Not one of us is going to be kicking and screaming as God is pushing us into the kingdom of you know, into heaven. Uh, I don't want to go. And, he, and he's trying to force us. He doesn't do that. When we go to heaven, we go there because we realize the blessing that came upon us through the work of Jesus Christ. God's not forcing us in, you see. We're gladly, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're gladly looking for the day that Jesus comes. 
I think that little, little by little, and it's, it's a hard thing because we, we have so many connections in this, in this life and in this world, family and friends and loved ones, things, not to say that it's good or bad, you know, most of the time things are bad, but, but the connections, you know, we, we don't want to leave here until things are right, you know. But the more we, the, 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 the closer the day of Christ approaches, the more we grow in wisdom and grace, the more we, you know, we're, we're less connected to the world, the more we're connected to Christ. There are things in this world that we're going to have. Certainly, God's going to bless us, and, and that's, that's all great and good. But, you know, the most important thing for us to know is that there's no greater life than to be with Christ for an eternity in the state that he has chosen to have us in when we, can get, when we get there. And we're not there yet because we're still in flesh. But somehow, we don't understand it all fully, but somehow one day we'll be able to recognize each other. But more importantly, we're not going to be looking for each other as much as we're going to be looking to Him. Because that's where we want to be. Before His throne, worshiping Him. Day after day after day, because there's no more night in heaven. Day after day in the light, why? Because there's no darkness in heaven. Day after day with no tears in our eyes, why? Because there's no tears in heaven. We're rejoicing. And when we look to the throne of God and of Christ, we'll see a lion and we'll see a lamb. And it's still Jesus. How wonderfully manifest the Lord has been to us in so many different and varied ways. I'm the Good Shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the altar of sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. All of those things Christ did for us and became for us. We know better. We know better when we fall and we sin. We know better. We fall shamed. And the Lord picks us up. And He dusts us off. And you know what He dusts off more than anything else? He dusts off that shame. What it should do to us is make us more humble before Him. Too often people get picked up and then all of a sudden they, their, their attitude changes. And then they, they think less of, of, of humbling themselves and more of, well, it must be okay, you know, to keep doing things. things God will keep picking me up. But we've established the wrong attitude in that. Every time we're humbled by His grace, we should be lower so He could be higher. That's humility. That needs to be taught in the church of Jesus Christ. Too much arrogance in the church today. As if God owes us. God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Verses 28 through 32. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. By the way, there's a reason for the order. We don't, we're not going to study the book of Romans tonight, but there's a reason for the order because everything, there's a, there's a thread that goes through each one of these things. So as close as they are to each other, there, there's a closeness to each sin. I don't know if you'll notice this, but when you read lists of sins, in the, in, especially in the, in the New Testament, you'll always find sexual immorality and idolatry very close to each other. Because that was the problem in Paul's time. But all of the religions, uh, you know, the false religions of that time, connected idolatry with sexual immorality. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But notice, all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, sorry, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing, no, no, here it is, right here, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That is the mindset of the children of Judah and of Jerusalem. At this particular point in time, that God is sending Jer- uh, Jeremiah to search for one righteous man. But no longer interested in the truths of God, they broke away from Him. And God gave them over to that debased mind. The result of their actions was judgment. I don't know if you read, read that, that picture there in, in those verses. Wild animals destroying and devouring the one that had been yoked to the Lord. As if Judah was also an animal being yoked to the Lord. But it broke out of the yoke. And it may be metaphoric and, and signifying their destruction by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came like wild animals. But the children of Judah were acting as much like wild animals themselves. So as you are, so you'll be treated. So from this investigation due to their ungodliness, because that's what the, the, the focus was, their ungodliness, from investigation due to their ungodliness, we move on to condemnation. So if you're writing an, an outline, there's investigation, and then we move on to condemnation due to their ungratefulness. Before the investigation was for their ungodliness, now the condemnation is due to their ungratefulness. What is that? No thanksgiving to God. Ungrateful. Jeremiah 5, verses 7 through 9. How shall I pardon you for this? God is speaking. How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. So it was a rampant problem. It wasn't just a few you know, here and there scattered. 
They were like well-fed, lusty stallions. We need to go into that detail. That's pretty descriptive already. Lusty stallions. Everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. (laughs) Wow. Still, animalistic here. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? You see, the Lord is essentially asking two questions here. Why should I pardon you? And shall I not punish them for these things? First he speaks to the nation, then he speaks to Jeremiah. Why should I pardon you? Then he says, shall I not punish them for these things? I mean, the Lord had fed them to the full, it says, by supplying all of their needs. Everything they needed, God gave them. Were they ever thankful for it? No. Now stop and think. What has God given you today that you should be thankful for? My question is, have you thanked Him yet? We as Christians ought to get into the immediate habit of thanking the Lord as soon as we know God has given us something. And not to do it, you know, like, like a parrot, you know, but, but do it with, with a heart of thanksgiving. Oh dear God, thank you so much. I mean, I mean it, 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 it could be as simplistic as, you know, kids in school today probably saying, thank you Lord, when the teacher that was going to give a test was absent. Oh, thank you, Lord. But, uh, you know, that Thanksgiving only came because they didn't study that night before, you see. But God gives us so many things. He supplied their needs, yet they, they used His gifts to commit sin. Here's the problem. They used His gifts to commit sin and worship and serve their idols. They sinned and then they worshiped and served the idols rather than, he, than God who gave them what they had. I mean, how ungrateful they were for God's blessings. God's goodness should have, bought, should have brought them to repentance. God's goodness should have brought them to that place where they would repent of their sins. Look at Romans 2 verses 1 through, 1 through 4. Romans 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge... For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I mean, that, if that doesn't describe Judah at the time of Jeremiah, that last uh, verse, verse 4, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? By the way, ignorance is no excuse. What is really sad is that God blessed them, and in their time of prosperity, they forsook the Lord and turned to the false gods. They couldn't wait to commit these sins. But what about the Lord? 
His long-suffering and patience go way beyond what we can imagine. How long did God, you know, did God wait before He does what He does? We're talking a long time. Last week I said there was still 40 years out. Babylon, Babylon or the, the nation was still about 40 years off. So how long was God giving them to repent, to turn from their sins, and to come back to Him? You see, He desires to pardon His people. He desires to forgive us our, you know, He desires to forgive us our sins, and, and the only way that He can do that is when we come to Christ. And when we invite Him to be our Lord and Savior in our lives. And that He may forgive us of our sins. It is then that the pardon that has already been paid for can be appropriated in our lives. When we come to Christ, receive Him as our Lord and Savior. We know what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I need to emphasize that He says, not willing that any should perish. His desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, I mean, here's the warning. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. You know, I'm really glad for the rapture of the church because I, I drive an element, a Honda element. I just had to throw that in. This is the one it to burn up when I'm driving it. You know. But these things are going to happen, folks. Because God's desire is that we all be saved. That's His desire. Is it going to happen? I hope that everyone in here will heed the voice of God, will heed the word of the Lord, and respond to it. But you see, His own people committed acts of sexual immorality as a part of their idol worship, and again, ungrateful for His blessings. At some time tonight, read Hosea chapters, uh, or Hosea chapter 2, verses 4 through 13. But let me just read you verse 13. Again, read, read Hosea 2, verses 4 through 13. But I want you to look at verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, or the Baals, to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry, and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. She forgot me. The Canaanites conducted idolatrous worship that was tremendously immoral. They believed that consorting or partnering with temple prostitutes could guarantee a fruitful harvest. Baal also being the storm god would provide the needed rain. And so when the Lord held back the rain to warn His people, because you see, the Lord's real, not Baal. And even if you link Baal with Satan, the Lord is much more powerful than Baal. Because the Lord is the creator of the wind and the rain. And the controller of the wind and the rain. So, 
When the Lord held back the rain to warn His people, they turned to pagan gods for help. So where was their mind? It was a debased mind. Now the condemnation, we went from investigation to condemnation, now the condemnation would lead to devastation. It's the third point. Investigation, condemnation, and devastation. The devastation now is due to their unfaithfulness. Investigation due to their ungodliness. Condemnation due to their ungratefulness. Devastation due to their unfaithfulness. Let's look at verses 10 through 19. Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. That would be the, 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 the instructions to Babylon. Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not He, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The false prophets, see. The false prophets. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire. And this people would, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Kind of a reference to Babylon. And even a reference to Babel, isn't it? Their quiver is like an open tomb. They're all mighty men. And they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. They trusted in the fortified cities, but even those cities would not protect them. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. And it will be when you say, Why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them. Just as you have forsaken me, and serve foreign gods in your land. So you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. You've, you've served idols in the land I gave you to worship me in. And because of that, you will be taken to a land where you'll serve those aliens. And I'm not talking about the ones coming from the... The foreigners... You'll serve them in a land that is not yours. For serving the idols in my land, you'll now serve aliens in theirs. As you have done against me, so shall it be done to you. So that you will know 
that I'm God. There is no other. Judah, which had once been God's choices vine, had become a wild vine. Go back to Jeremiah 2, verse 21, where it says, Yet I had planted you a, a noble vine, a choice vine, you see, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? What a sad statement. What a sad story. What a, what a sad testimony. I planted you a noble vine in a land that was rich and fertile so that you would honor and bless me in that land. But how then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? And so God called the invaders to go through Judah's vineyards and to prune off the dead branches. And though the nation would not be destroyed completely, those individuals who did not belong to the Lord would be removed in judgment. And here was the heart of the matter, this section that we just read in verses 10 through 19. The heart of the matter was this. The people refused to believe that God would ever destroy Jerusalem. They refused to believe it. So the false prophets they would listen to, and the false prophets kept telling them, God's not going to destroy us. They announced that God would do nothing. I'd be foolish to say that God is not going to destroy or to judge anyone who runs into a church building and you know, finds his refuge there. Because you see, it's, the building isn't what saves us. The building isn't what protects us. It's the Lord himself. The Lord didn't say, come to the building. He said, come to me. Come to me. Return to me is what we read in earlier chapters. Return to me or, or come to me is what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Come to me. And that's the invitation God gives each and, you know, each and every time we gather. Come to the Lord. How many times is God going to say that before you listen and pay attention? If you haven't already done it. To them, the prophets of God, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the like, that were predicting the doom that was going to come, the ones that were speaking the truth, were just full of wind, or so the people said. But if you read verses 10 through 19 properly, you realize that God was saying that the false prophets were the, one that were, were the ones that were full of wind. It doesn't matter. See, in the end, the Lord knows who's speaking the truth and who isn't. The fact of the matter is, every believer in Jesus Christ ought to have the discernment through the Spirit of God to know when somebody's speaking truth and somebody's speaking falsehood. 
And I know, I'm, you know I, I, I say this often, but I think that that's the one gift that the church desperately needs to focus on and concentrate on in these last days, and that is the gift of discernment. To be able to discern all of the voices that are being, you know, that are, that are speaking today on behalf of God and of Christ. And not just those voices. Every voice that is going to have some kind of effect upon the church of Jesus Christ. That means political voices. Some of the greatest issues that we're dealing with in these next few weeks, the next 44 days or so before the election, are issues that affect the church and affect the people in the body of Christ. Concerning the issues of life and concerning the issues of freedom of expression. To be able to preach the gospel without any limitations. Because there are movements even today. Oh, by the way, families and marriages. Issues that affect the church. Too many voices not speaking on behalf of the truth of God and of Christ. These are issues we cannot fall asleep on in these next couple of months. I want to read Jeremiah 5 verse 12 from the New Living Translation. It says, They have lied about the Lord and have said, He won't bother us. No disasters will come upon us. There will be no war or famine. We know what's going to happen. Move to the New Testament. Jesus, before going to the cross, preaches that great sermon the Olivet Sermon. And he says, in effect, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be many false Christs and many deceivers in the last days. But do not be deceived. You see, the message carries on through every generation. What are some people saying today? God will never send anyone to hell. There are people that there are specific churches today that they won't they won't teach about hell because they don't believe in hell. Liberal theologians today coming out of the best cemeteries in the in the world, the seminaries in the world, telling you that there's no hell and God's not going to send you there. But, but let, me, let, me, let, let me just make this correction here. They say God will never send anyone to hell. Now I have to tell you that there is truth to that statement. But not in the way these people are thinking. You see, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People go there by their choice. Or their choices. God does not send anyone to hell. And I'll tell you this, it isn't easy. 
It isn't easy. Some will say, well, it's easy to go to hell. It's not easy. Because you can ignore the truths of God. You can ignore the judgments of God. You can ignore the consequences of your sins. And if you try hard enough, you will make it there. You go to hell. That's a lot of work. Because you have to do a lot of ignoring. You've got to ignore the truths of God. You've got to ignore the judgments of God. You've got to ignore the consequences of your sins. You started doing all of these things. I mean, that's a lot of work to do, isn't it? What is simple? The gospel is simple. But it requires one thing. The gospel requires our death. It requires our death. But you see, Jesus died on the cross for us. Now we do die to self, and we do die to sin, so that when we do, we will be alive in Christ, and Christ will be alive in us. So when, a person, so when, when people say, well, you know, God will never send you to hell, in a sense that's true because we, we send ourselves there because we refuse to listen to what God has said will bring us life and eternal salvation. But I have to tell you, don't blame God for that. Don't blame God for anyone going to hell. Don't blame God. He's done everything possible to save people from that. By sending His only begotten Son to this world, by putting His only begotten Son on the cross, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, if we will just believe and come to Christ. And that peace with God can only be found in Christ Jesus. I love the words of Jesus in John 14, verse 27, when He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. What a beautiful passage. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. You see, Jesus is all about life. And he's all about peace. And he's all about joy. And he's all about goodness. He's all about godliness and righteousness. He's all about gentleness. He's all about self-control. He's all about kindness. Sounds like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control. You know, it's interesting that this warning opened and closed with a promise that God would not destroy the nation completely. The warning that we read in these last 10 verses, verses 10 through 19. In verse 10 it says, Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. Do not make a complete end. So he tells Babylon, don't make a complete end. But in verse 18 he says, Nevertheless in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. He tells them, I'm not going to destroy you completely. So what is it? Even in wrath, 
God remembers mercy. Even in wrath, God remembers mercy. If you want to know where that's from, it's Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Y'all need to find, you know, Sergio's study on the book of Habakkuk on Tuesday nights. And he'll, he'll be talking about this pretty soon, I'm sure. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. The prophets announced judgment, but they also promised that a remnant would be uh, spared. The remnant that returned to Judah from Babylon after the captivity restored the nation. They, they rebuilt the temple and maintained the testimony, preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. The Lord had covenanted with Abraham that through his descendants all the world would be blessed. Genesis chapter 13. And God kept his promise, you see. Because God always keeps his promises. But now after the investigation and the condemnation and the devastation due to their ungodliness and ungratefulness and unfaithfulness comes a proclamation now. So the fourth point is a proclamation to the unconcerned. To the unconcerned. Jeremiah 5 verses 20 through 24. And really all the way down to the, to the end. Verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah saying... Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the pointed weeks of the harvest. Well, the Lord is calling His people foolish because they have closed their eyes to Him and shut their ears to His word. And again, this was not God's fault. They refused to respond to God's calling. As Ezekiel writes in his prophecy, Ezekiel 12 verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are, uh, they are a rebellious house. Now what good is it to have eyes to see and, and, and eyes that can see but you don't see, and ears that can hear but you don't hear? I hate to say this, but it happens every Sunday and Wednesday night. And Jesus understood this because he quotes out of this passage in Isaiah that says the same thing. Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. He says, For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes that they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Because if they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, guess what? They're going to have to respond to the truth of it. And then he says, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But you see, the problem was that they, they no longer feared God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. By now they should have feared God, as much as the sea remains within its borders, you see. Even when the seas are roaring and roaring, it stays within its borders. Judah refused to remain within God's covenant limits, you see. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against Him today. Like them, there's no fear of God. 
There should be fear of God in the church. And I hope and pray that you understand what it means to fear the Lord. Read the book of Proverbs, please. Read Psalm 34 and 37, please. Read these books because it teaches us what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the knowledge of the Holy One. We need to understand the fear of the Lord. But it is the proper sense of worship and reverence and respect to God. And we as the church need to know what it means to fear the Lord. That we won't go outside of the bounds that He has made for us. As much as the flesh is wanting to do that. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But you know when it says that the flesh is weak, it says that the flesh is strong too. Because it wants to have its own way. But know and understand this, that one day we will all stand. Every one of us in this room, we will all stand before the creator of heaven and earth and give an account of our life. We will all do so. We'll either stand in our own righteousness, which is like filthy rags, or the righteousness that has been imputed to us through Christ. If you're living in sin, you better fear God. If you're living in sin, you better fear God. And turn from that sin. And turn to God. And return to Him. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth a sea and springs of water. Fear God. He's made all things. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our fear. He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our respect. If you go to verse 25 of Jeremiah 5, it says, Your iniquities have turned these things away. Your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sits who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the right of the needy. They do not defend. We're very close to that in our nation today with this subprime crisis we're having, Wall Street situation that we're having. We're very close to this, if not already in it. But just for time, God delights in blessing us. God delights in blessing us, but a life of sin will restrict those blessings from flowing in our lives. One answer and or solution is in Jude's statement. Jude 1 verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Simply keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We are to walk in His ways and as we do, as we follow after the Lord, obedient to Him, He will open the storehouses in heaven and bless us. I, I don't think that any of us missed a meal unless we just chose not to eat one. 
I don't think any of us had a problem of looking into a closet and, and not finding any clothes. I think we found what we needed to be here. You're all well-dressed. Well, you're all dressed anyway. By choice. And by blessing. God has blessed you. The simple things of this life. I'm talking about wanting to get more and more and more. Just talking about the fact that we have everything we need in Christ. We're blessed. And that is what the Lord is saying here in Jeremiah. It is what He wants to do. But as the people prospered, they moved away from God. That was, that was a problem, see? And that, they, and that was manifested in their actions, which did not reflect the heart of God. The more they made, the more they kept for themselves, instead of helping those in need, as the Lord would have us to do. Interestingly enough, a study has revealed that those who give the most are the ones that have the least. And I'm talking about in the church. Those who give the most are the ones who have the least. An interesting study. But it's very true. We close off in verses 29 through 31. He asks the question again, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, And my people love to have it so. They just like it that way. But what will you do in the end? Folks, that last question, that's for us. What will we do in the end? You see, instead of encouraging one another, excuse me, instead of encouraging one another to fear God, they exploited one another like hunters snaring birds. Thus the rich grew richer as the poor languished. The courts were corrupt. The prophets were liars. And the priests, were they, they went right along with them. And the people approved what was done and they enjoyed it. My people love to have it so. When a nation becomes that corrupt, there is no longer any hope. They thought they were getting away with their crimes, but the Lord asked them the question, What will you do in the end? What will you do in the end? Let me tell you what the end is here. Turn to Proverbs 14, and we're going to close with this. Proverbs 14. Verses 11 through 14. And it's really verse 12 that is the key verse here, but I want you to look at verses 11 through 14, because these verses surround this one thought. But they're all tied into what we've read tonight. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Notice verse 12, the key verse here. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Verse 13. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, And the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. But a good man will be satisfied from above. The question is, what will you do in the end? Will you be as Judah at this point in time? Because there was a way that seemed right to them. But but its end 
is the way of death. What will you do in the end? What will we do in the end? What we do in the end will be motivated by what we do now in Christ. Should we take wholeheartedly the words of the Lord and the word of our God and believe and trust in everything that he has done for us and we live our lives not for ourselves but for the sake of Christ the end for us will only be the beginning of blessing and joy in the presence of our God and Savior Jesus Christ for an eternity. What we do if the way is our way that seems right to us because you see it seemed right to Judah then the, the end would be death and separation for an eternity from God. And I believe that we all as Christians or those who are here tonight, I would hope and pray that all of you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But only the Lord knows our hearts. And I would encourage you Return to the Lord if you've walked away from Him. Come back to Jesus and receive His healing, His forgiveness. Receive His blessing. Receive His deliverance. Or come to Jesus now. Because He alone is salvation. And I'm not telling you to think about it because today is the day of salvation. Nowhere in Scripture does it say tomorrow is the day of salvation. It only says today. Let's pray.